welcome to the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk with experts to explore the field of nutritional sciences and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with Canadian doctors, dietitians, athletes, climate experts, and more to break down the evidence behind a whole foods plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps you can take in your effort to shift toward a healthier lifestyle. Dan and Sean Muskaluk, also known on social media as Indian Rock Vegans, have been whole food, plant-based vegan lifestyle health advocates since 2013 and advocating for animals since 2017. They live in Indian Rock, Naramata, British Columbia. As keynote speakers at health conferences, VegFests, and on podcasts, they share their life-changing and life-saving health recovery stories from obesity and terminal kidney cancer through a whole food, plant-based lifestyle. They also speak on the cruel and exploitative nature and negative environmental impacts of animal agriculture. Sean and Dan are affectionately known as the Canadian content in the critically acclaimed health documentary film, Eating You Alive. Sean holds a certificate in plant-based nutrition from E. Cornell University Center for Nutrition Studies and is a co-facilitator with the Penticton Complete Health Improvement Program. Both Sean and Dan are directors with the Okanagan Health Forum. Adopting a whole food plant-based lifestyle was key to Sean losing 133 pounds from a weight of 300 pounds. Sean shed the weight over a two-year period, permitting her to maintain the weight loss and regain her vitality and health. Dan is a veteran police officer of 33 years. He worked as a provincial level media spokesperson with the RCMP and is also a former United Nations peacekeeping mission spokesperson. Now recently retired, Dan attributes adopting a whole food plant-based lifestyle as a key factor of his surviving stage four kidney cancer and living with PTSD. Dan and Sean, thank you so much for joining the Plant-Based Podcast. We really appreciate you having you guys on the show and I really want to just get the audience to, to learn a little bit about you. So if you can tell me a bit about yourselves, um, where you grew up and how you two met. <laughs> I guess I'll start because well. I'm I was the pursuer. <laughs> Isn't it always the case? No, we're, uh, I was born and raised in Ottawa, Ontario, and uh, lived uh, in the same residence my whole life. And she, uh, being an RCMP uh, brat, I guess you could say, moved into the neighborhood when we were in our late teens. And we kind of met up in late teens. And then, as you say, the rest is history. We both ended up, uh, I joined the RCMP as well. And uh, uh, we ended up moving to British Columbia with an engagement ring on her finger and uh, the rest is history. We, here we are. It was 1989. 1989. So a very long time ago. Yeah. We just celebrated our 33rd anniversary, which seems absolutely uh, Crazy. shocking. Crazy. <laughs> and it's interesting because we both feel that this last decade, like our, uh, you know, my fifties in particular and her late forties, it was a really, really massive, massive decade. Uh, of course, you have the typical things. We have teenage kids now, or actually they're in their 20s and uh, empty 20s. nesters. I'm retired from the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police with 33 years service. And she's managed the home and uh, has had uh, several jobs as well. But yeah, as we got into this lifestyle, and then when we look back, uh, I'm celebrating my 60th birthday in, in, in November. And it's incredible. Yeah, I think um, other than, you know, those big milestones like getting married and having babies, uh, switching to a plant-based lifestyle really was probably one of the biggest and most profound changes in our life that we uh, decided on as opposed to those, you know, pressures or, you know, you grow up thinking, well, you get married and you have babies, right? So those all seem very natural and mm -hmm. everybody does them everybody doesn't switch to a plant-based diet. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. they should. So yeah, we, 
I think we lived a really normal, typical, middle-class Canadian lifestyle, both in our own homes growing up mm-hmm. and together until, well, my mid-40s mm-hmm. when things drastically changed. So, yeah, I and I, I think that's powerful in that we are so ordinary. <laughs> You know, we're just, we're anybody. And I think... uh, Well, a little bit of extraordinary. (laughs) But generally speaking, I always say, and you hear this often, it's like, well, if we can do it, anybody can do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you have a really, really inspiring uh, story. And the two of you together. Well, first of all, uh, congratulations on on the anniversary. That, that's, that's, that's amazing. So we, we mentioned, you alluded to um, the big lifestyle change, right? And, and how that's been such a big uh, life changer for you guys. And, yeah. and, and you know, a lot of people that I've talked to that, that have personally made the change for them too. It's a big thing. And then once you go down that rabbit hole, it, you know, it opens the door to so many other things because you might come to it for health, but then there's a slew of other reasons. And then once you start looking into it, it becomes a landslide of all these other things that, you know, it touches everything. I'm curious before you found the plant-based lifestyle, before you found the plant-based diet, uh, what were some of the other diets that you guys had, you know, practiced or come across or tried out before you made the big shift to to plant-based? Well, you know, I think, you know, I, I was definitely the homemaker, uh, Dan worked shifts. So I was in charge of the house because he was, you know, in and out and sleeping and what have you as a police officer. Um, and I think really we followed the standard American diet where animal protein was the big show on the plate. And that was what everything revolved around. What, what's for dinner? Oh, we're going to have a pork chop or a chicken breast and whatever other vegetable on the side type of thing. And um, for myself, I struggled with my weight always. I gained a lot of weight for the first pregnancy, put off getting pregnant again, hoping to lose weight between pregnancies wasn't so thought, okay, let's just go for it. Second pregnancy gained even more weight. And it kind of left me by the time I had two children, I was obese. And I could never quite figure out why. Why was this such a struggle for me? I ate maybe more than everybody, the same things that everybody else was eating. And and Dan and I were on the same diet. Of course, you know, I don't think I was as physically active with two toddlers at home or two kids at home. And he was the one that was, you know, as a police officer, always on his feet, always moving. Mm -hmm. However, um, so during that time, I was desperate to lose weight. And so I tried everything, Weight Watchers, Jenny Craig, Nutrisystem, you name it. You know, I even did like, I don't think they called it keto at that time, but uh, a very high meat diet. And, you know, they all work temporarily while you're on them. But the minute you go back, you say, okay, I've hit my goal weight of losing X number of pounds. And you go back to eating the standard American diet, the weight just came back and more so. So you said something really interesting that I took note of. And it's, you said, you tried some of these diets and that you tried something that was meat heavy and you compared it to keto, but you said it wasn't called keto at the time, which, which makes me interested because I think you're making a point without making a point there in the sense that it wasn't called keto then it's called keto now. And so I guess how many, 
similarities did you see in some of these different diets that you were trying? Because you mentioned keto, we've got paleo and you go back, you know, back into the past and you've got the Atkins diet and yeah. the South yeah. Beach diet. Yeah, it was uh, actually, you know, I think it was called Atkins back then. And then it has morphed into keto and carnivore and paleo. And, and, you know, I think now from my perspective of what I know now is that I just find it so interesting because they are, all of those diets are so close to the standard American diet where it's meat heavy, meat centric. Right. And so you're not really making that big of a change. And it's like, oh, I ate bacon before, but now if I eat more bacon, that's going to make a difference. Like, I really don't understand the rationale of those diets as far as, you know, especially knowing what I know now from a health perspective, from a environmental perspective, which is becoming clearly more, more clear as time goes by, I think Mm -hmm. we're all understanding the impacts of animal agriculture, but as far as those diets go, they're, they're really just kind of giving you the okay to have more of the things that are bad for you. And sure, you lose weight on those diets, specifically the meat heavy ones, because you're not having any fiber fiber, or, you know, you're, you're losing water weight. It's, it's just really interesting to look back at all of the things that I did and how short-sighted and unscientific and just lacking all common sense and they seem then, to be yeah. now. And then I think back then too, certainly we weren't, or we in particular, you, you weren't as knowledgeable with no. respect to uh, the adverse health effects of, right. of all of those derivative things, ingredients. You know. And I, I think sadly, most of us get most of our nutritional information from well-funded advertising campaigns. And most people don't geek out the way that I did as I transitioned into a plant-based diet to really learn about how food affects your body and, um, and all of the different systems that your body takes care of on, an, on a daily basis. Most people I don't really think have an idea of nutrition, what food does how it impacts your body all of those kind of things and you know we always say that should be taught in high school really so but it's not so that transitioned us so i had resigned to the fact that i would be obese for the rest of my life and at the time i was a a baker at a local coffee shop and food was my currency if somebody did something nice, I made them a cheesecake or cookies or something like that. And that was kind of, I thought, well, that's my trademark, my way of being. And so. And I think too, it's interesting to point out too, Sean, is that we, as everybody, you know, we weren't processed food consumers. Mm. We believed and we were taught and told that this is what you eat. You, you cook uh, fabulous from scratch cook. So you have the assumption that this is what I should eat. Yeah. And I thought I was feeding my family fairly healthy, you know, skinless chicken breasts. And I did make everything at home, which, you know, obviously is somewhat better than buying processed food, but, but it really, you know, we were just kind of chugging along and my son joined a gym. Our son joined a gym when he was about 15 or 16 And at the gym, they said, well, if you ever want to put on muscle, you're going to need whey protein powder. So he came (laughs) home, told me that. And as a good mom, off I went to the health food store. And uh, I'm looking at one of those giant jugs of whey protein. 
And by the, by some miracle, the sales lady comes up to me and she says, Oh, hello. Who are you buying that for? And I said, my son, how old? 16. And she kind of pauses and leans in and quietly says to me, you should do some research before you give that to your kids. And I was stunned because when are you ever in a store and they deter you from buying a product? Mm -hmm. And so that really kind of set me on my heels. So I put it down, left the store and I came home and I Googled whey protein powder. And again, by some Mm -hmm. miracle of luck, Dr. John McDougall's The Perils of Dairy popped up and I watched this video and I thought, who is this crazy crack? Because it was completely opposite of everything I had ever been taught about dairy, that we need it for strong bones and teeth and blah, 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 blah. And I was so stunned by this video. I watched it back to back three more times. And then, of course, you know, it was YouTube. So then, you know, all of the little side panel of associated videos comes up and there was, you know, Dean Ornish and Caldwell Esselstyn and, you know, all of these people that have now become so important in our lives. And it just, for some reason, it just ignited my curiosity. And I started to watch every video I could read all of the books that these doctors had written. I mean, literally, I would flush the family out of the house in the morning, off to school, off to work, wherever. And I would sit and read from for four to six hours a day. And it just became a passion for me. I used to be in book clubs. And since 2010, I haven't read fiction once. And it's kind of interesting, though, too, if you really preface that, that Christmas, I got her a Kindle, which was, you know, brand new, brand new, big, big technology. (laughs) So it gave her access to all of these titles and these authors and researchers. And that's 2010. And at that time, you're 40. yeah, yeah, yeah. 2010. Let's see. <laughs> that's 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 a Early lot of Early forties, uh, yeah. And you are upwards 40s. of over three hundred pounds. Yeah, well, not over three hundred pounds. Close but, to three hundred. Yeah, close to three hundred pounds. So, you know, I really took that deep dive, went way down the rabbit hole, mm. and I was just reading about the health implications of switching to a plant based diet. I started doing it. For myself, I was cooking two meals. I was cooking, I had teenagers in the house at that time. So I was cooking for Dan and the teenagers. And I was cooking for myself, plant-based, vegan-y, plant-based, but but plant-based. And I was doing it for health. And that first month, I lost 15 pounds without even trying. And I was not doing any exercise at almost 300 pounds, you know. I was so out of shape, not a chance. And it was just shocking to me that I was eating these mountains of food that tasted good. I mean, you know, obviously there were some epic fails that first month as you learn how to transition, you're reteaching yourself how to cook. Mm -hmm. But it was so amazing to me that I was just shocked and I just kept going. And then I think it was... um, just the beginning of 2011 and I read the China study by Dr. T. Colin Campbell. And that was it. That was the quintessential moment when I decided I could no longer feed my family or myself in the way that we had. And it was April 1st, April fool's day, 
that I cleaned out everything. I took tubs of meat over to my neighbors. I got rid of all the processed food in the house and it was like too bad. So sad. This is how we're eating. And you guys weren't that thrilled. No, no, we weren't because it's, you know, like you say, you're so meat centric as to what's in the middle of the plate that now, um, yeah. So it was some adjustment for us. And we, she conceded that we, you know, especially as a shift worker that she could control us in the house, but she was going to, you know, it was hard for her to control us out of the house. So yeah, it, uh, still, you know, 95% plant-based for those, uh, that yeah. period. And at first, you know, it was, it was funny. I said, you can have a cheat day on Sunday. You can eat anything you want on Sunday. And so they would. And then, you know, slowly they came to that realization that on Monday they felt really yeah. horrible. And it was, so it, The first connection. Yeah, the first connection. And so that kind of went along and we just transitioned as a family to being vegan, plant-based vegan at that time, I would say. Because with teenagers, I was trying to lure them in with, you know, some, and there's so much more available than there was now, but some things like, you know, the the plant-based chicken nuggets and things like that. So, so. I, over that next two years, went on to lose 133 pounds. And I really never set that goal. It just happened. It just, you know, I was like, maybe I can lose 20 pounds. Maybe I can lose 50. Maybe I can lose 70. Oh my God, I just crossed the 100 pound mark. And and that was all just, it was just melting off. It was... I could not keep up with clothes, new clothes. I was like, just pium, 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 going through them. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was all that this lifestyle mm-hmm. change had to mm-hmm. offer. I thought we did this or I did this because of my weight loss. And what I realize now. Yeah. But we, is, uh, we, you know, and in the two years for, for myself as well, that in those two years, um, I lost 35 pounds. I, uh, eliminated and reversed metabolic syndrome, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and uh, felt tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was, you know, eating that way in the home, still scarfing stuff, stuff down outside the home, but I was healthier than I'd been in, in decades. We yeah. thought we were bulletproof. Yeah. I, I really thought that we, that's all we needed from it. We were heading towards you know, being empty nesters, you were tiring. We thought, wow, this, this is awesome. But, but it was just getting ready yeah. for the fight of our life. Yeah. And, and that, that brings us to, you know, the fall of 2013, uh, where the exact date, November 9th, and I remember it very clearly the week leading up to it, uh, a week of, I had abdominal pains and kidney areas. And as a week uh, at work, I, you know, didn't look well and I was sweating and not feeling well. And it was like, is everything okay? And I said, I'm not sure what's going on, but, and I was thinking kidney stones or, or kidney infection and uh, worked through the week and got to the Saturday, November 9th and was cutting firewood all day. And by the end of the day, I was just buckled in the most extreme pain. And again, I'm thinking, no, this is a kidney stone. So I thought, no, I got to get to the hospital. And so I went to the local emergency room uh, by that time evening and describe what was going on and uh, was heavily sedated. And then they took all the scans and tests. And after hours of wait, as we always do, the physician came back in and uh, walked us into an examination room. 
and nowhere to sit. And we're just all kind of standing there as he walked into the room and he hadn't taken a couple of steps into the room. He said, Dan, it's not kidney stones. It's not a kidney infection. It's cancer. Your right kidney is one massive tumor and it's metastasized. And um, as the cliche goes, you know, you hear that and you're not computing and then he starts to describe what's going on. He said, yeah, your, your right kidney is one massive tumor. It's metastasized into the vena cava, and it's also spread to your lymph nodes. So essentially, this is, this is stage four kidney cancer. And, um, but he, I think he was a little confused and shocked as well, too, because other than this terminal cancer, I looked extremely healthy. All my blood markers, everything was tremendous other than this, this advanced cancer. And now this cancer as well, this is something that when we look at renal cell carcinoma, this would have been developing and growing for about 15, 20 years to, you know, to reach the point that it did. Kidney cancer is notorious for being asymptomatic, but at this time here, it had taken over the whole kidney, which then was calving out. And then you have some impediment on other fun organ functions where uh, the, the tumor is now growing up the vena cava towards my heart and lungs. And again, like I said, spread into the lymph nodes. So um, the prognosis was months to two years. First couple of weeks, of course, you're in shock and just in dismay. So it's a matter of, you know, go attending work. And I'm fortunate being a federal employee that uh, I went on extended medical leave and advised everybody, well, I don't know what's going to happen, but the outlook doesn't look good more specialists, uh, you know, appointments. Uh, and then they said, well, the first order of their day, uh, of course, is surgery is the first step um, where, uh, you know, we can look at a, an extreme nephrectomy. So like Dan said, we, you know, we were, you're just in shock. That mm. happens to other people. It doesn't happen to you. And you just get the rug pulled right mm. out. But I had been reading for well, almost three years by that time. And it was like, okay, well, let's put it to the test. And so I really started to focus on reading about cancer and nutrition. And what really shocked and pissed me off is there's a hundred years of, of data showing that animal protein causes cancer cell growth. And so Huh. We, we were told about this surgery. So it was like, okay, let's get ready. So I started what I called our program of nutritional excellence. Mm. And that was the cleanest, meanest, whole food, plant-based diet that I could devise. SOS. Yeah, it was a little bit of salt, but like all processed food was gone. All vegan type food was gone. Uh, we were whole grains, not even unbroken grains, no flour products, no sugar, no oil, tons of greens. Mm -hmm. Like every meal was a massive greens and just, you know, tons of it getting ready for the surgery and to make him as healthy as absolutely mm -hmm. possibly we could going forward. Yeah. It, you know, again, that, that evening in the emergency room with the physician, when he said, yeah, it's, it's terminal cancer. That was the moment that I knew that, yes, I've done this, you know, 95%, but I have to adopt this 100% to hopefully stack the odds in my favor. And why? Because I didn't want to die. And I wanted to do everything that I could to increase my odds of, of surviving 
uh, stage four kidney cancer, which has a 5% survival rate. Um, how, how long had you been, how long had you guys been on a plant-based diet prior to the the two years. So two years. Okay. yeah, it was two, it was about two so, years, but and you were feeling better actually, right? Yes. Like you, your blood pressure and everything was and So it must've been such a major shock to, to be feeling better, feeling a certain way and then, and then get that diagnosis. Yeah, exactly. And that was the thing though, you know, it being asymptomatic, but there was no question that there was some functions, organ functions that were starting to, to falter. Uh, but again, as they said, well, okay, the first step is the surgery, extreme nephrectomy. Uh, we can get you in uh, December. That was Christmas, Christmas Eve. And uh, so we uh, were, we traveled down to Vancouver, five hour drive. And the four of us, we spent our Christmas weekend at Vancouver General Hospital. And again, they said, well, you're, first of all, you're an extremely good candidate for the surgery. It's going to be a massive surgery. And they essentially, you know, open the abdomen in kind of a chevron shape from side to side um, and, uh, you know, cut everything open, peel the muscle layers back and, and get at the, uh, at the, the kidney and, and clamp off all the organs. They said, you know, that it's, it's a major surgery. It, it could be very risky, but again, you're very healthy. But I had uh, two uh, nephrologists or, or kidney specialists and the uh, cardiovascular surgeon on hand just in case things went sideways. So it was a lengthy heart surgery. I was in there for about five days. It was, again, when you talk about the shock and how sobering this is to say that, you know, here I was, I'm middle-aged and things are going great. I'm even gotten healthier. And there was, uh, you know, I'm sitting in the hospital bed and I've got uh, epidural tube in my back. I've got intravenous, two of them lines in my arm, heart monitors and so on and oxygen uh, and and uh, it was just looking at myself, and it was interesting because this is an older hotel or hospital room where they got those large, big TVs that hang from the ceiling at that time. And the TV was off most of the time because I was heavily drugged. But at one point, I clearly, fond, uh, you know, not the fondest, the most vivid memory I have was I looked up and I saw my reflection in that TV screen. And, you know, you're looking down or looking up and looking down. And I was like, oh, my God look at me. It was a brutal recovery, you know, the five, six days in, in, in the hospital and then, you know, permitted to leave. We stayed in a hotel for another few days That's because right. they wanted us close at hand in, case, in case anything went, went wrong. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I think too, as you know, Dan says, you know, he's looking at himself in the reflection of the, the TV for probably 15 years before that, if, if anyone had seen a photo of the two of us, mm -hmm. me being obese and him looking fine, you know, maybe 30 pounds overweight, everybody would have pointed to me as the one who was probably at risk, looping back to all these diets, the keto diet and the carnivore diet. It doesn't matter how you look on the outside because mm -hmm. you just don't know what's going on in the inside. And all of these people that drop dead, oh my goodness, he was so fit, he was so this and he was so that. Well, what was he eating? Mm -hmm. Because I think that has such a huge influence on our health outcome. Yeah, short term gain and again, yeah. people not taking the deep dive. Yeah, so we went back to the hotel. Oh, it was brutal. It was yeah. it was the most it was the most brutal thing. And then got home. This is midwinter, and our in the Okanagan here, our winters are are very 
dull, gray sky, overcast. We have an abundance of wildlife in the in the spring summer months. So this the winters are very desolate and quiet. And I was bedridden uh, for the first uh, several weeks, and I couldn't eat, of course, because I had you know fifty three staples across my abdomen, and, and you know you know painkillers and and different medications. And it got to a point I don't do well on meds as many people do. And it was to a point where, you know, you'd get nauseous from the meds and middle of the night, you're wrenching out, you know, your empty abdomen, your stomach is empty because you're not eating. And uh, that was the first step is that's enough of the meds. I can't do them anymore. I'm not sleeping. And, and because uh, they kept piling on them. Yeah. Meds, try this, like, do this, you know, do that. This one has a side effect. Okay. Well, we'll give you one that will, you know, help mm. with that side effect. And that would, would have a yeah. side effect. It was- so they gets to that point, very short order that that's enough of those. I can, you know, bear the brunt of this as, you know, the, the, the plainest, you know, medications of Tylenol and so on. And then, but eating was, uh, was difficult. And, and I lost a tremendous amount of weight in those first few weeks. Uh, she became very concerned as well too. What do I do? How do I feed this guy to get him to eat and, you know, being bedridden. And the solution was again, when we look at, uh, you know, high calorie or, or calorically dense and nutrient dense being the two things at that point in time that she wanted to ensure. And that was roasting uh, raw nuts. And then my grazing those uh, bedside bowls of nuts and I swear cashew here, almond there. And that got me through with, you know, water and, and that, and then and juicing, and we juicing. juicing, but you know, that's not a ton of calories. And- no. So, yeah. And then as I, as I started recovering from the surgery, like, you know, again, the doctors are stumped. They're like, huh, you know, and they told us, they said, you know, okay, we've gotten rid of what we could of the cancer. You still have some lymph nodes that are affected in other areas, distant, but uh, we'd be naive to think this won't spread and grow. So then you go into it thinking, okay, well, here we go. And uh, I'm going to take it as it comes and see what happens. But as the weeks progress, I, I healed tremendously well from the surgery. In the interim, they said, there's nothing uh, effective for stage four kidney cancer. We don't do chemo. We don't do radiation for it because it's ineffective. The only thing that we could can possibly consider for you, and considering you're extremely healthy, other than the terminal cancer, you'd be a great candidate for uh, a trial study. We have the, the newest immunotherapy drugs at that time were just starting to be tested. And they said, we can get you onto a trial study once you've healed and it's possibly we can get you on one. So that's, you know, the, for those months from December to March, it was months before I even left the bedroom, the treadmill, you know, it's interesting. We talk about exercise and you know, the will and wanting to do something and knowing that, okay, I got to move. And the treadmill for the first couple of weeks was, you know, beside the bed. And it was like step in front of one foot in front of the other for a couple of minutes at a time. And just a matter of moving your feet forward at a very slow pace. And, you know, just thinking about it all saying, no, okay, how do I feel right now? I'm going to do this. And and it, it just kept, I just kept feeling better and better as I went along thinking to myself as I had said, huh, I feel pretty good. And then, you know, start gaining weight again, you go to the physician, they look at the sutures and the incision points and they say, wow, you've healed tremendously well from the surgery. That's incredible. Your blood's well, all your markers are good and um, you're making an excellent recovery. So yeah, you know, then down the stairs from the bedroom into the living room, next thing you know, it's a walk up and down the driveway. And it's interesting. We have this fabulous spring here. So 
everything coincides, I think, when you look at what's going on around you, your environment as well plays an important part. I was of the adage of I'm going to make the most of this. I'm not sleeping much, so I'm up early for dawn. I'm, I, I saw the spring arrive. I'm always very mindful. But that particular spring was really, really tremendous feeling. And then to say to yourself, okay, well, I wake up. What's today going to bring? And this is how I feel this very moment. And I can't really complain because I feel pretty good and I feel I'm getting healthier. So just built on that and on and on we went. And by March, I said, okay, we can get you onto a a phase one trial study of immunotherapy drugs. And at the time it was going to be at the trial study clinic in Vancouver, which meant a five hour drive. The protocol was going to be three treat or four treatments every three weeks of the combination of the drug of two drugs. And then they said, after that treatment, we would put you on a maintenance treatment of the one drug for the rest of your life, or however long your body can endure it. And that was every two weeks. And that was every two weeks that so we were packing up, going to Vancouver to the trial study clinic. And we were just about, you know, starting up on the trial study. And you'd, um, stay in a ho- you'd have the, the, the treatment and yeah. you'd have to stay in a hotel for a couple of days. Yeah. And interestingly enough, in, in the, the interim as well, and Sean took the phone call uh, with respect to the cancer clinic, when they did the biopsy and the surgery post-surgery. Yeah, they called, Dan was still upstairs recovering and they called and they said, you know, we're really sorry to tell you, but this is a really aggressive form of cancer. And I remember hanging up the phone thinking, that's it. That's it. We're done. There's no hope. And what we've come to realize now, what we believe is that that Petri dish was a really hospitable environment to do the doubling rate of the cancer. And we had made Dan's body really inhospitable Mm -hmm. to the cancer. Mm -hmm. Because even prior to the treatment, which started in March, there was no spread. There was no growth, no spread to bones, other organs or blood. And uh, the three lymph nodes that they examined closely were not growing. Um, so I got onto the trial drugs and uh, it came with a package of side effects, about 100 pages. And the one paragraph, of course, stipulated that you enrolling in this trial study, phase one trial study is not to have uh, any expected personal benefit to you or expected improvement in your condition. So essentially outlining that you're just doing this as a guinea pig and to see what happens when we administer this drug into the doses that we can. Of course, at that time, you know, we, uh, we thought, well, it's medical intervention. That was the only hope we had to look at. And we thought, well, it's terminal. And, uh, you know, we've given the prognosis. So we agreed to it. And one of the side effects, of course, that they said is that the immunotherapy, essentially the immunodrugs, they bump up your immune system tremendously to get past the blocks and the walls that the cancer cells put up that they hide behind to fight the cancer cells. But the side effect can be that because your immune system is so amped up, it can attack itself and it could attack other organs or healthy organs. And I had uh, three treatments uh, of, of the combination. So we were just into the first segment of the protocol. And I woke up a couple of days after the one treatment, we would go down, we would stay for the treatment, uh, stay, spend a couple of nights when I'd recover from the side effects of the malaise that you would feel. And then we drive home. 
And then a couple of nights in when we got back home after the third one, I woke up with an extreme fee with a fever. And, and as any cancer patient can tell you, fever is the one big red flag that you're always warned about and that if you have a fever, immediately get a hold of uh, medical help. So I woke up in the middle of the night and uh, was uh, marking a fever. She was sound asleep. I could hardly wake her. She's, ah, oh, don't worry about it. We'll get up in the morning. We'll deal with this. And I said, no, no, we, we got to go in and, and get this checked. We went to the emergency ward that night and they ran the blood tests and they said, yeah, your kidney right now. Liver. I'm sorry, your liver is uh, in distress. Uh, the immunotherapy drugs have attacked it and they are actually producing 25 times the normal enzyme levels. So it was an immediate uh, dismissal from the trial study because this was a near fatal attack. So that night they said, okay, they figured out what was going on. They said, thank you very much for participating, Mr. Moskaluk, and you're now dismissed from the trial. So that was in May. Yeah, uh, And you know, it was interesting be because it was a phase one trial study, which is basically an experiment. I was adamant that if this was truly an experiment, all aspects need to all be factors. all factors need to be looked at need to be recognized and looked at. So I was constantly with the oncologist who the lead oncologist in the trial study, I was saying, I want it noted that we're on a whole food plant-based diet. And he would roll his eyes and just, oh, nobody cares. You know, diet doesn't matter, food doesn't matter. And I was so persistent about this and just he wouldn't have wouldn't have it. And the assistant uh, nurse on the other hand, though, interestingly <laughs> enough, she was listening. Yeah, she listened. But uh, <laughs> but you know, and and it's it's so interesting because I just was so shocked that they did not want to hear this because they did not want to muddy the waters. If this drug works, it's because of the drug. Mm. They're not making billions of dollars by selling broccoli. So it um, that brought us to May. And uh, again, at that time, when I kept going in, because I was getting scans every six weeks so with my regular cancer clinic here and uh, as well with the scans taking place at, in Vancouver and uh, my own physician and these oncologists, everybody was kind of shrugging their shoulders. That's a saying that, wow, you're doing incredibly well with this, other than the fact that the drugs nearly killed you. But there's nothing more we can do. What we'll do now is we're just going to keep an eye on things and we will watch your kidney function uh, and see what happens next. So at that time too, like, you know, I'm, I'm fully recovered from the surgery. I'm gosh, I was a, a you know, very, I was very fit because now I was exercising or walking and cycling and so on and just feeling tremendous. So again, you're looking at, you know, you're like, this is incredible. I was told I'm, I'm going to die, but I'm not dead yet. And in fact, I feel great. I feel better than I always have. And we just kept plugging along. And by that fall, they, they you know, they officially started saying, yeah, your, your cancer's in remission. The three lymph nodes have shrunk quite drastically. And they were around your windpipe. Yeah, windpipe. And that they were initially telling us that this is going to be an issue because this is going to well, uh, limit your breathing and pair breathing and but we'll cross that yeah. bridge when we get to it kind of thing yeah so then that fall they're you're in remission and at that time too kind of the oncologists at our local clinic are kind of tag teaming uh you know speaking with me and kind of you know shrugging their shoulders well that's very interesting you're 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 kind of superman here so it was really yeah and then you meet with people 
and like, oh, so it was just a touch of cancer or it wasn't that terminal or no, it was, it's pretty bad, but here I am. And one of the last scans that I had was in that Jan or December. And I got the results back in January or so uh, of 2.15 now. Uh, so just about two years from diagnosis, they said, uh, we're closing your file this month. Your, you know, your cancer is radiologically undetectable and you're cancer free. If you were to walk into the clinic today as a brand new patient, thinking that you're, you have suffer from cancer, we would turn you away. Yeah. yeah. And that in itself also astounds me because here's somebody who has, you know, diagnosed November surgery, December 24th, off all medical treatment by May of 214. So, you know, that was 213 to 214. Mm -hmm. And Not even a remission year. to closing the file. Hang on a second. Why isn't there a team at our house looking? What time do they go to bed? What do they eat? What kind of toilet paper do they use? What the heck happened here? But no, close the file, send yeah. them home. Spontaneous remission. Yeah. We don't want to know anything more about you. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah. yeah, it was very interesting is that, you know, and again, our family physician was tremendous because he's been a long time physician for us. And as we adopted this lifestyle, you know, Sean was, has always been a strong advocate for our family health and each other. But when it came to adopting plant-based and seeing the results that we had and, you know, the other general health markers, she was really, really on our physician. And he came to a point where if she forwarded a study to him or some documentation or questions yeah. that he took her shopping list and had to listen through it and, yeah. and became aware that, yes, yeah. no, there's something to this. Yeah, it evolved. And at first we were having a lot of fights about things. And then I just, I'd be so, I, you know, I'd leave my appointment and I'd come back with data so <laughs> and I make him read it. The, the point of the matter is, is advocate for yourself with your healthcare physicians and your team. Uh, hopefully, if they, they're not knowledgeable as to what you're up to, but you've got the data and the evidence to support, you know, especially dietary nutrition, yeah. that hopefully they're supportive of it, but don't abdicate. And that's the problem with how we are, you know, have been brought up through our, our, our care system. It's not really a healthcare system that uh, a lot of people will simply abdicate as to, oh, the doctor said this, the doctor said that, or again, what we're seeing as, as advertisement or marketing. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and sadly, we know that uh, by no fault of their own, doctors are just simply not taught nutrition mm. or the profound impacts that nutrition has. Mm. Um, until so, now. Until now. Well, with that, lifestyle that, medicine. Yeah, that's, da, it's da, da. Not, yeah, it's happening more and more, thank God. Well, if yes. it wasn't for cases like yours, we there might not have been a push like there is now for people to actually get well, their, their training yeah. in lifestyle medicine, right? Like we're seeing more and more. And then like you said, like the nurse was interested or your or, or your family doctor was interested in pushing it to the to the other doctor. Like that's there yeah. there and you know, and now so many more doctors are getting the lifestyle certification, lifestyle medicine certification. Because there's like you said, there is evidence now. And and that reminds me, you mentioned that we had a hundred years of data looking at the connection between food and cancer. And, and you're right. You read one of the big things that changed your mind was the China study, right? And literally he was able to show, I think in mice uh, trials to turn on, turn off cancer, the growth of cancer cells in these animals. But I remember reading when I was looking into the stuff myself, reading about, I think it was like 1908 or 1910, there was some bigger study that linked specifically the consumption of meat, red meat in particular with with cancer. 
And so again, these things have, it's been in the literature forever, but like you said, and by no fault of their own, you know, that your typical doctor's not really trained in this type of stuff, but hopefully your example is going to promote more of this and which is an absolutely just extraordinary story, by the way, for you to have, you know, from point A to point B, make those changes first, feel the way that you did good, and then get this diagnosis and then drop to such a low point of, of how you're feeling and then come back out of it. And then suddenly remission, right? That's, yeah. that's such an extraordinary. And I, and I, I want to ask really quickly about, um, obviously you felt uh, brutal, horrific for, for some weeks of that, right. When, in, in during your recovery and all of that, and, but the disease, this cancer, like a lot of debilitating diseases, like it, it's not, it's, it's obviously you who's, who's feeling this way, but it, it affects everything around you. It affects Sean, it affects your kids. It affects your, you know, your career, like how big of an impact was this for, for everybody at home and, and your friends and your family? Well, certainly. Yeah. I, I think anybody who's been, you know, directly affected or indirectly as a family member of, of a chronic illness or, or a particular cancer, it's life, it's life altering in the sense that you are now just on another fork in the road. And I, I always felt that in the initial months or so of the cancer and, and starting to learn about it and, and dealing with it, it was, uh, it was a heavy, heavy atmosphere that I can, it was like having a third person in the room. And that third person was always present. Mm-hmm. And um, it would uh, pull you away from, you know, you being in the moment or what was happening and then of course i being a i was lucky i was able to take leave of absence for that whole period of time for the two years mm-hmm. and then family members well it was tough it was tough um <laughs> it took a long time to be able to plan like we were just living so day by day expecting death to show up and making all of those arrangements and plans and it didn't, but you know, even things I like, I remember my mom calling one time and going, would you guys like to come for lunch next week? And I'm like, next week, I, I can't think about next week. Like I simply could not plan for the future at all. Not even a week's worth because we didn't know what was going to happen. We were told that this was this horrible diagnosis. He had months to two years and it was going to be miserable. So you kind of like, like you know, prepare for that. And it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And it took a long time to relax and actually think about, oh, well, hey, let's, you know, in six months, let's do this or let's do that. And, and even now, I mean, I think once you go through something like this, you're kind of always, as we should all be waiting for that other shoe to drop, because none of us know what Mm -hmm. the future holds. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's what we came to really understand is that the future is not obligated to give you what you expect. Mm. And so it drastically changed. I, I mean, even our kids are freaked out sometimes. Yeah. If you call unexpectedly, they're like, what's wrong? But you know? and then looking back too, when I consider that, you know, the, our son and daughter were in their late teens, mid teens at the time, and they handled it tremendously well. Um, our son was just about to take off on a career where he was absent from the home and he didn't put that off. He said, no, you carry on on your route. And our daughter, of course, she was out of the house already. And so that was interesting. Immediate family. We're fortunate. We got both sets of parents in the immediate area. 
yeah, it's uh, it like I said, it affects everything, and of course, your neighbors, your friends. But it was again, people would I encounter people in town and like, oh, wow, you look really, really great. Well, and then again, her hanging off my arm when she lost all that weight, you know, people didn't even recognize her when we, you know, you know, I'm sorry to backtrack, but we forgot to mention this, like <laughs> people we hadn't seen in a while knowing Sean as this morbidly obese person. And all of a sudden there's this svelte woman hanging off Dan's arm. It's like, oh my God, Dan and Sean have gotten divorced. Who's this? Especially she had sunglasses on until she would speak. And then people were just gobstopped. Uh, Women, friends of yours were in tears. Uh, Yeah. I'm sorry to digress. Yeah. yeah, That's like stepping way back, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I think, you know, what you're trying to say is that we both had such by doing one thing, Change by on changing what's on the tip of your fork, we both changed our lives so, so much. Yeah. I, and I, I, you know, it, and it's funny, you know, now we're kind of back to everyday life and we're planning gardening things and this and that and everything. And then we do these podcasts and it just brings up all these emotions. Yeah. So yeah, we're again, I think too, is that I've always been very, very mindful. I was fortunate. I did two UN peacekeeping duties in a third world country in Haiti twice, where I saw firsthand as a police officer, it's, I've been of service, uh, in service to all my communities and assisting victims and so on. So always very mindful, but I'm telling you a terminal cancer diagnosis and regardless of how long you survive it, if you survive it, but to be mindful as to that you've got this time, you don't know how much time it's going to be. How are you going to spend that time? What mind frame are you going to have? And that you cannot wallow in that despair because you have to have hope without hope. There's nothing. Um, and that there's no guarantees with the cancer. That's what we always tell people as well too. And, you know, advocate for yourself, be it what treatment you're looking at, what it may give you or so on. Uh, just, you know, educate yourself about cancer itself and about what treatments are, are the prospects. There's no guarantees. But that's again, too, when you look at whole food plant based nutrition, well, for the other ones, heart disease, over 93% of heart disease cases can be fully reversed and preventable with a, with a plant based nutrition, 93% as well of diabetes type two can be reversed. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think there's a lot of power in you use the word abdicate, we often abdicate our health over to the, the, the mm. system. And I think by advocating for your own health, it empowers you that you feel you're a player in this whole scenario, that you by making the choices that you're doing, and that you are in your control, can really have an impact on whatever disease you're dealing with. And I use this analogy because I think it's um, fitting. When we first moved here to the Okanagan, there's a lot of rattlesnakes on our property, which was terrifying. (laughs) We had small kids at the time and a dog and all this kind of stuff. And it just seems overwhelming to think that there are these deadly snakes out there. So what did we do? We did as much research as we possibly could on rattlesnakes. When do they mate? Where do they migrate? How, what do they eat? When are they most active? And by educating ourselves as much as possible, it took away some of the fear. And I think that by educating yourself as much as possible about whatever disease you're suffering, but in our case, it was cancer, it takes away some of the fear. Mm. And I feel like the China study in particular, you know, T. Colin Campbell is just, 
he is just so hopeful about cancer. You know, he really demystifies it. I think cancer is one of those words that just strikes fear. Mm-hmm. And, and it really, by researching and learning about what actually happens in the mechanical functions of cancer is just so helpful. And so I would say that any disease, the, the, the more you know about it, the more you feel empowered to deal with mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And so that was huge for us. Yeah. 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 And then again, with work, you know, it was, you know, I'd pop into the office every once in a while just to, you know, by policy, but people would look at me. And, and then after the two years, I said, okay, 31 year service at the time, I, I was expecting to, you know, go to 35, but I went back to work uh, after the two year uh, recovery, just because I could go back. <laughs> and it was interesting because at the time, uh, well, the last 10 years of my career with the RCMP has been with uh, provincial national level spokesperson, media spokesperson. So prior to the diagnosis and as the diagnosis came up, my cancer diagnosis was very, very public because all of a sudden this guy who's on, you know, in the news and in and, and, and people's, you know, living rooms every night disappeared. And so that really put us out in the public eye, but, and at the same time, which brings us kind of a a segue up to, you know, I was, uh, when I was recovering, I started, I'd never been an online person. So I had a laptop and an iPad and I was, I put on, got onto social media and started learning more and reading. And she would give me the links to what I needed to read and watch and listen to because uh, she's the subject matter expert with the health aspects of it. But I started learning more and more one day the movie trailers popped up for this one film eating you alive and coming it's soon coming, coming soon, soon coming soon so i was like oh man and the trailers are tremendous it's got samuel jackson james cameron and of course all the rock stars of the plant-based nutrition field so you know i've always been engaged uh you know social media and media of course so i put some of my skill sets to work and i i messaged the uh, the makers, the producer that day, direct message on Facebook and think, okay, I'll get a response back perhaps. And then instantaneously, because I said, we're interested in this film. This is what I'm currently going through. And I'm really anxious to see your film. It looks great. When's it coming out? So I just hit send and almost instantaneously, there's a message back. Hey, can I call you right now? And this is so-and-so, Merrily Jacobs. I'm the producer of the film and we're very intrigued by what you've shared with us. So Sean was that day. This is interesting backstory. She's running around the house on a Sunday, typical Sunday. She's getting ready to leave to go help a friend convalesce from surgery. And I'm sitting drinking coffee on the iPad. Of course, that never bites well at times in a household. She says, what are you doing? And then I, I was then by that time I'm on the phone. And she's further aggravated. I'm trying to leave. What are, who are you on the phone with? I said, I'm on the phone with the producers of eating you alive. Dead silence. Oh, spoke with Mary Lee for about an hour and a half and uh, just a wonderful person and uh, full of questions. So she says, you know what? Let us look at this. And uh, we're thinking we've finished the film. Actually, it's production is completed, but we're thinking of reopening production to get you guys included. And uh, if this is a go, we would like to get you down here soon. I said, well, how as soon as soon? And what's said, well, down here? And what's down here? So, well, hopefully this week. And that would be coming down here to Chattanooga, Tennessee. So she, you know, I hung up. I told her what was going on. She's like, oh, okay. Let me wrap my head around this being the, yeah. 
the the planner she is and by that wednesday merrily called back she said yeah we want to get you down here tomorrow can you can you jump on a plane and come down we're gonna shoot you guys and uh, she got back from her friends on a plane to atlanta and we spent the week uh, with uh, Mary Lee and David and the uh, Eating You Alive crew, small production company. They themselves have an incredible story because they were just doing medical productions for physicians down there. A plant-based physician. Plant, a plant-based physician kind of latched them on and say, can you do some products for us? They were so intrigued for it. That's how Eating You Alive was born because they adopted it, the whole crew. And they saw the tremendous health benefits. Then there was so much so that they said, we got to make a movie about this. And then there you go. Our springboard platform that really, you know, I was fortunate as, you know, as a public figure here in the communities, that's one thing. But then to get propelled with such a polished top shelf production by our estimate is is one of the best, if not the best plant-based films made. And and we're saying that, without being biased we yeah. really do think it's it's one of the best and yeah so it was it was such an amazing oh, uh, it opened so many doors for us to be did. introduced to people and it, it was they came up they were doing a premiere through the united states and they said hey we're we're really close to the border we're gonna just come up right we're gonna come up to penticton and we're gonna do a screening there and we're like oh my god we'd not seen it before or yeah. anything so we set up we sold tickets for one screen sold out completely right away 300 seats yeah we had to do another screening sold out completely had a waiting list and so it was so interesting because we sat with our community and watched the film for the first time Mm. (laughs) and then again myself being used to you know not the big screen but yeah yeah i'm on the news or i'm on the radio or whatever that's fine and i've seen i've seen myself her, on the other hand, we're sitting there and all of a sudden there's this blonde, <laughs> ravishing blonde on the screen. And she, said, I was oh like, my. oh, we haven't seen her before. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> it was so, it was so interesting. So it was very well received and, and we were fortunate enough. We ended up going to the LA premiere with the film. We spent a week down there being introduced and meeting so many wonderful people in the, the, you know, the health aspect of, of the trifecta of, of health, animal rights, and, and, and environment. And we met so many people down there. We toured with the film uh, through a couple of the provinces here and um, screenings, private screenings of it. So yeah, Eating You Alive and, and that, that experience really opened up a lot of doors and gave us the desire, I think, to the credibility, not credibility, but just the exposure to look at the fact that we've got something to share with people. We can help people. Sean took her eCornell plant-based nutrition certification. Uh, we, you know, she got the certificate, but I followed it as well. And uh, I think we, after a situation like we went through, it's like you, you feel obligated to shout it from the rooftops yeah, yeah. because there are people out there that are suffering and oblivious to the fact that, that there is something really powerful that very well could help them. Yeah. And, you know, go back. I went back to work and everybody again was kind of scratching their head. Well, you said you were going to die. And I said, yeah, I thought I was going to die too, but I didn't die. So I'm here. <laughs> and of course, then of course it's plant place, plant based, you know? <laughs> so initially it's like, wow, that's incredible. Dan, tell me more. But then after a while, it's like, Dan, shut, shut up. up about the plant base. <laughs> <laughs> But I think any anybody who adopts this lifestyle will see. But again, yeah. too, when you look at the ripple effects, there's no question about it. Yeah. Even to this day, when you have somebody 
come up to you in the street and tap you on the shoulder, a total stranger, and doesn't even have to be in our community, it can be another province or miles away. Thank you very much for for sharing what you learned and we've done it and essentially you've changed our lives as well. And I think again, too, a lot of anybody who's done this and it's particularly physicians that take on this type of medical practice, what a tremendous feeling. I, you know, as a police officer, again, I've come to really appreciate the intrinsic value of, of doing good for others, but man, you know, I've helped a lot of victims, but gosh, when it came to the health thing now and them sharing what we you know, just sharing our, our reversals is just, it's really, really great. And even to this day, it's, it's something that we still, we still do a lot of outreach. And here we are again, you know, finally, yes, a Cana- another Canadian podcast, because you get a lot of attention elsewhere, but in Canada, things are growing. And with your organization in particular, it's great to see. Yeah. Yeah. I think people are going to be really, really happy with this podcast. It's been a great one. I, I, I have to say, you so so for anybody who hasn't seen eating you alive yet we'll link your specifically your you know section in there so people can watch it and i really mm-hmm. do recommend highly that people go out check it out because like you said there's a lot of big players in it and maybe even some other plant-based individuals who people aren't familiar with that make an appearance and like you said james cameron samuel jackson they make their cameos in there too and it's a really well produced documentary so i advise everybody to go check it out we'll link it in there but Dan, if all it took was a DM, then maybe I should message some, uh, maybe I should message uh, James Cameron and <laughs> see what he's hey, up to. I am telling you, we nail, nail we a do. part in one of his movies. Yeah. Well, I tell you, know. you or at least I get on the podcast and everybody's so giving of their time. Yeah. Like, you know, we're, I, we're a retired couple. We've got the time to be doing this. But when you look at the, the Esselstyns or T. Colin Campbell or, or all these individuals, physicians that are so giving to impart this information. Uh, we were lucky again too, we, we went on one of the holistic holiday at sea cruises where all our heroes were captive on this <laughs> ship for 11 days. We were able to stalk them, but interestingly <laughs> enough, we ended up spending a lot of time with Dr. Campbell and his family and dinners and evenings. And it's like- It was a pinch me moment. In fact, I think we both solved. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was just like, Here's the man that ultimately saved Dan's life, really. And to be sitting there having dinner with him was just mind-blowing. Yeah. It was, I think he's like, who are these people? They're <laughs> so emotional. And, but he must be used to it. He yeah. has to be used to it. And he's just so humble and gracious and wonderful. He's and, a historic figure. Yeah. You know, one of the dinners, we all imparted a bit of, you know, how we were feeling. And and I said, you know, there's no question about it. We'll look back. And, and it, it's always the case where people that uh, make history and have an effect uh, are only recognized years, decades later. So uh, there's no question about it. T. Colin Campbell, one of, one of them, sure. amongst all of these yeah. positions. So, I mean, that film was a launching pad for us. And we have gone on to meet almost every doctor that I followed initially. I mean, Dean Ornish kissed me on the cheek once, you know, <laughs> didn't wash for a month. Uh, you know, and it's and it's true. It's you become so, you're just so your world changes. It's like, I always say this, if I got on an elevator and there was Mick Jagger and Dr. Kim Williams, I'd be like, Mick, get out of the way. I want to talk to Dr. (laughs) Williams. You know, it's because like these people are really the ones that are, are changing 
people's lives mm-hmm. and changing are, are really having such an impact on our medical system, as you said, you know. Well, you were fortunate enough, you went down to Plantrician, you dragged yeah. a friend along who's also a physician. Yeah, I dragged, I went to the Plantrician conference a couple of times. And, and uh, one time I have a, a friend who happens to be a doctor, and she's vegan. And I said, Whoa, 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 are you teaching your patients about this? She said, Well, no, it's just for me. And I'm like, Come on, we're going to Plantrician. So I took her down to California to the Plantrician Conference. Boom, she signed up to the, the College of Lifestyle Medicine, um, yeah. Medicine and she's board, uh, certified. board certified now. And that is her primary focus. So it is definitely happening. Yeah, it's, it's, I think cancer allowed us to never say no. And we've done amazing things. You talk about Esselstyn and, and Campbell and Dr. Williams and everybody, and they truly are making these, these big changes. But as you're telling me your story, I think it's really important to, to highlight the fact that you, you guys are making these, you're doing the work, you know, like you, before the cancer diagnosis, you had done the work to, to make your family healthier and you put in the hours, you researched all these things, you found an answer and you got, you know, actual change that came out of it. And then after the diagnosis, you were the, you guys were the ones who were doing the work you put in the work and you're still, the crazy thing is, is you're still doing it now. You're still, I know, you know, you are a part of this documentary and your personal story can help other people. And then, you know, like you got your, your friend to go with you to, to the, to the conference. And now there you go. Another person is, is, is helping people in another way. But on top of that, you, you've got your social media platform and you've been keynote speakers at, at some conferences and you guys, you do podcasts and you do podcasts like, like ours, which we're, we're thankful for. That's, you know, that's part of the, you're just as needed, I think. And with your, with your personal stories, because people, you know, like it's one thing to, to sit down and give somebody all this data. And I'm glad that you guys are so receptive of it because not everybody is, it's a lot of work, but mm-hmm. uh, I think you mentioned too, when we were talking about the diagnosis, you get this diagnosis and it's, and it's so abysmal and, and, and it's so easy to go down one route but you went the opposite way and you were more hopeful and you were trying to solve the problem and do everything that you could to make things better in that time for people who were listening at home and are really inspired by what you guys did and your tenacity, what's your advice for them and how to get out there and make these changes? Well, the first step in your house, it's in your mouth. Yeah. (laughs) I think, you know, uh, chef AJ says that if it's in your house, it's in your mouth. So, I mean, I, really believe people say, Oh, baby steps, whatever. And that's fine. But if you're dealing with a life threatening diagnosis, you don't have time to be pussyfooting around, you need to take immediate action. Mm -hmm. And I also understand, I just need to prefix this a little, is that I understand fully how fragile you are when you get those diagnoses. Mm -hmm. And and how paralyzing they can be. And I am forever grateful that I had this in place before Dan's cancer was diagnosed. So, but what we would say is clean out your house, stock it with whole food plant-based ingredients, get a couple of good cookbooks and take the deep dive. There's so much available now on on multimedia formats. Uh, And I think too, again, as a couple, you know, we, we were so busy. We do this, we do that. We prioritize things. I don't think there's anything more important than uh, learning how to cook and learning how to cook together 
and doing it together and the benefits of that in itself and the enjoyment you can have and teaching your kids and teaching your kids. Yeah. And but it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's one of our biggest regrets is that we didn't know this earlier and that our children were not plant-based from conception. They are now, but you know, it's never too late. It's never too late. It's never too early. And I think, you know, we live beside a lake and I always say this as well is that we go down to the lake and Dan will take that big running dive into the water and he's splashing around and he's out in the lake and he's enjoying himself. And I am one of those people that tippy toes in and every half inch is painful. Hmm. And I think of that as the perfect analogy, because if you just take that dive, you're in there enjoying it right away. Mm -hmm. But if you take those baby steps, it's hard because if you're not seeing those big changes, you know, big changes bring about you know yeah big changes being <laughs> big results big results yeah. and so it's like just just do it and it's you'll it'll be difficult at first maybe that first month will feel like and I remember this I remember thinking oh god okay I fed them breakfast oh that was exhausting oh, now, oh my god what am I gonna feed them mm. for lunch and oh no and dinner there's, there's system then changes it just and... becomes easy as it just as it was to pull out a pork chop and make a potato and whatever, it becomes just as easy and just as natural as that was. I mean, I never have to think about what we're having for dinner now, and I hardly even rarely follow yeah. recipes. It's just and boom. there's there's so much more support. There is yeah. credible resources that are so available, literally at our fingertips. Again, the ripple effects. You know, we've had an effect on on family members, friends, neighbors. A big tip. Find that community, be it online or in physically in your community. There's there's other people living this lifestyle. So I think the support that you get from immersing yourself around others that are, are uh, like-minded. Yeah. And I think education too. And I think it's the trifecta now for us. Mm-hmm. It's health, the environment, and animals. And once you research and really learn about all three of those aspects, it's, it's non-negotiable. There's like, there's not a chance in hell that we would ever go back to eating animals. Yeah. Uh, it, just for all those three reasons. For all those three reasons. And especially with, with where we are at right now, it's like, you know, not everybody can buy an electric car. Not everybody can turn to thermo heating or what have you. But for gosh sakes, every single one of us, and this is not elitist. This is not privilege. Bag of beans and rice is pretty cheap. Today, just by making the decision to change what you eat, you can have the most impact on the situation we're in here. Your own carbon footprint. Your own carbon footprint. And there's no other personal step that you can take that has this effect. Yeah. 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 So I think, you know, education, 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 learn as much as you can about each Mm. aspect. I I think that for us, we identify as whole food, plant-based vegans, which sounds like a mouthful, but some people are plant-based and they're still, you know, wearing leather belts and leather shoes. And I I don't want to be, you know, seen as being judgmental, but there's cruelty and suffering in those items that still has a huge environmental impact. And so it's, uh, it's for us, it's the trifecta. That that was it too, because we got into it for health. But again, too, I think I'm a bit of an anomaly in the other aspect spectrum as a retired, as a police, former police officer who was on the one side of protest lines, I'm an act, I'm animal rights activist, have been 
active for even when I was still employed. So I've crossed the protest line to to speak for others. And again, as a police officer, you are there to help victims. You are there to hopefully prevent victimization and prevent violence or to intervene when you see it. So this is what I do now, but it covers all species. We're fortunate enough to be involved with some large actions here in Canada across the country. And the one resulted in a great article, the Vancouver Sun, uh, titled, How Did a BC Cop Cross the Protest Lines? And great article, a good short video that's attached to it that kind of explains as to what would it, why would a police officer be conducting himself this way now? It's just other victims. You know, I think that for us, definitely health was our huge motivator. But then when you find about the environmental impacts of animal agriculture, it's like, well, perfect personal health is inconsequential Mm. if they don't have a planet to live on. Yeah. And so, you know, we really, Indian Rock Vegans, our Facebook group is just about health and just about all of the data relating to that. And then our own personal page has a mix of everything. Mm. And Instagram is is a mix of with the food. The food. We cannot do this interview without talking about the food. We're yeah. foodies. Yeah. This is not about deprivation. This no. is about taste sensation. The food is tremendously delicious. It's It can be as complex as you want it or as simple yeah. as you want it. And I think it's almost more difficult to be whole food plant-based now than it was back when we started because the vegan options are just exploding. So, you know, if somebody's not really that crazy about the health and they just, you know. But at like, least taking animals off their plate. Yeah, that does have, you know, it's always better than what, right? So is a hamburger, a beef burger, you know, a beyond burger is better than that, but is a beyond burger better than broccoli? No. So (laughs) it's making all those choices, Mm -hmm. but it's the best thing we've ever done. And it's had the most impact on us, on everyone around us. Yeah. And I'm hitting 60 in November. It's the 10th, uh, you know, this an end of a decade and you know, we've, we've packed a lot of life in, in, in life so far, but this past 10 years. And then again, uh, the uh, Kassams, we're, we're so grateful to these two wonderful women, you know, and your organization, and the, whole group, yeah. the whole group and everybody that that's doing this. It's, yeah. you know, and the health reversal stories, you know, there's a lot of us out there. Yeah. I think when we went on the, uh, the uh, holistic holiday at sea, you know, in your own community out there in the world, you feel like an anomaly. You go on one of those cruises you're a dime a dozen. Everybody's like, oh, I reversed my diabetes. Oh, I overcame this and I overcame, oh, I had cancer too. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's like, when you get a group of people together, 2000 people on a boat who are all doing the same thing, they're all telling the same story. So it's not, we're just not one-off eat this, Don't eat that. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Dan and Sean, your story is so amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for sharing your story. We're really appreciative of you guys coming on and and going through, and I know it can be emotional at times, going through everything that happened with the cancer, but you're so enthusiastic and full of life. And I really do think that your story will, will help do good and inspire people. So thank you again. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so Thank much you for so having much us. And, and reaching out to us. And when I saw it, because, you know, she was like, oh, who is this asking for a podcast? And then I saw the names. I was like, oh, my God. Well, of course, we're in your, you know, 
And thank you guys for doing the podcast because it is a really great way to uh, get this message out there. This podcast featured royalty-free music from bensound.com. A very special thanks to our guests for speaking with us and sharing their insights. And of course, thank you for listening. The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate the public and health professionals on the evidence-based benefits of plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website, www.plantbasedcanada.org, and stay up to date by following us on Instagram and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org and our Plant-Based Canada YouTube channel. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts.